Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Richard Marshall, who rebelled twice in 1233, sparking a minor civil war and throwing Henry's attempts to campaign against rebels in Wales into disarray. It was clear to all that the situation was untenable. According to Roger of Wendover, by June 1233 Henry's magnates were beginning to talk of deposing him. In a great council at Westminster held in February of the following year, the English bishops implored the king to rid himself of Des Roches and his pernicious henchmen and stand on his own. Henry agreed, but then, as became his way at times of crisis, he took fright at the prospect of imposing his will on his realm. Instead of sweeping the deck and installing new ministers, he vanished from Westminster for more than a month on a tour of the holy shrines of East Anglia, praying to the holy fragment of the true cross in the monastery at Bromholm, the shrine to the Virgin Mary at Walsingham, and other favourite monasteries. Richard Marshall and Llewellyn of Wales were in rebellion, yet the king was on a pilgrimage. In April 1234, Richard Marshall died from his wounds after a battle in Ireland, and Henry was, wildly and erroneously, accused in some parts of having had him murdered. By May, the crisis in government had grown so acute that the English bishops, led by the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Edmund Rich, were threatening to excommunicate him. Henry finally shook himself into action. With some regret he ordered Des Roches to retire to his diocese and took control of government for the first time. He was not keen to rule, but it was clear that if he did not do so he would very swiftly find himself in the same dire circumstances as his father. At a great council held at Gloucester directly after Des Roches' fall, Henry acknowledged that his ministers had failed to abide by their agreement to afford barons who were accused of crimes judgment by their peers. He reversed some of the arbitrary land seizures undertaken by Des Roches, and committed himself once more to the spirit of the Magna Carta by promising to take important decisions only after consultation with great councils of his magnates. Out of the crisis Henry emerged, however unwillingly, as a king in keeping with the spirit of the realm, in which consensual observance of the principles of the Magna Carta was now esteemed above all other things. Curiously, at the same time as he took on the mantle of kingship, it also became clear that Henry was undergoing a form of spiritual transformation. As his realm erupted in protest, and he found himself confronted by overbearing ministers, rebellious barons, and truculent Welshmen, Henry, deeply wounded and confused by the upheaval, looked into English history for the inspiration he hoped would help him finally become a king worthy of the name. He found it not in the example of his uncle or grandfather, but in the life story of one of his more distant ancestors, the last of the Anglo-Saxon kings, St. Edward the Confessor. Edward, whose childless reign had ended in 1066, immediately resulting in the succession wars between Harold Godwinson and William the Conqueror, was not a king much venerated in Plantagenet England. He had been canonized in 1161 thanks to the offices of Henry II, but there was no great cult around him, and John's request to be buried alongside St. Wolfstan at Worcester rather than St. Edward at Westminster 
showed that there was little special sentiment attached to his example. Yet to Henry, delving into the past in search of a new father figure to prop him up, St. Edward the Confessor seemed to be an alluring role model. The history of Edward's reign looked to Henry rather like his own. Like Edward, he had come to power amid a time of civil war and popular oppression. Like Edward, he had to some extent been betrayed by his ministers. Just as de Burr and des Roches had manipulated Henry for their own ends, so the confessor had been undone by the treacherous Earl Godwin. Edward had endured the tribulations of kingship, and ascended to heaven accompanied by St. John the Evangelist. Pertinently, his laws that were held up as the ancient models for good kingship were cited in Henry I's Charter of Liberties. King John himself had sworn to adhere to the laws of King Edward when he was released from his excommunication by Stephen Langton in 1213. Edward the Confessor was an appealing model for a devout and well-meaning young king. From 1234 onward, Henry began to devote himself to the cult of Edward the Confessor with ever-growing zeal. He studied his life and legend, began to order images painted of famous scenes from the saintly life in Westminster and his other palaces, observed his feast day October 13th with ever more fanatical zeal, and referred in charters to the glorious King Edward, whom he regarded as his special patron. Henry would seek to follow his example for the rest of his life. Although devotion to saints and the archetype of the pious king was well established in the medieval mind, there was something rather extreme about Henry's growing adulation. Nevertheless, no one could complain of the effect it had on him. From 1234 Henry III was at last an adult king governing in his own right, committed to the spirit of the Magna Carta. It was what the realm had been demanding for years. The man who emerged from this long road out of childhood was a peculiar specimen. Henry was about five feet six inches in height. He was said to have a drooping eyelid, which gave him a crooked solemnity to match his somewhat ponderous character. He was noticeably pious, even in an age when the fashion among kings was for asceticism and ostentatious religiosity. Henry's counterpart, Louis IX of France, was fanatically devout, planning magnificent church-building projects such as the sublime Sainte-Chapelle, and thrusting himself into a burgeoning market for holy relics. In 1239 Louis was to pay the astonishing sum of 135,000 livres to Baldwin II of Constantinople for the crown of thorns and a fragment of the true cross. The holy competition between western kings was a game of spiritual trumps, and Henry was determined to be among the holiest kings in Christendom. Henry was not as physically or personally arresting as his forebears, but he was self-consciously given to greater displays of kingly magnificence than any of them. Perhaps the greatest artistic patron of all of England's medieval kings, he transformed the great centres of courtly life with paintings and buildings that celebrated the virtuous antiquity of kingship. Walls and windows burst with his favourite historical scenes and figures. St. Edward the Confessor was everywhere, but so too were Lazarus and Dives, the four evangelists, the keepers of King Solomon's bed, and military saints like St. Eustace, who was painted to stand guard over the king's bed at Westminster. Henry also commissioned paintings of Alexander the Great, the Siege of Antioch, and images of his uncle Richard the Lionheart's legendary deeds in the Holy Land. He was becoming a masterly propagandist, with a deft grasp of history and an instinct for broadcasting the divine magnificence of kingship. He spent an average of £3,000 a year, a tenth of his revenue, on building. His right-hand man in constructing the image of kingship was a goldsmith called Odo, and from 1240 Odo's son and successor Edward of Westminster, whose role as melter of the exchequer and keeper of the king's works included making all the gold cups, crowns, dazzling vestments, beautiful candles, and fine jewels with which Henry loved to surround himself. In January 1236, having carefully sought the permission of a great council to marry, the twenty-eight-year-old Henry finally took as his queen the twelve-year-old Eleanor of Provence. On the face of it, his choice of bride was somewhat eccentric. 
He had previously been engaged to Joan, the heiress to the county of Pontier, but the French court had fiercely objected to the prospect of an English king's marrying into a county on the northern French coast, and the marriage alliance had fallen apart. Henry had turned next to Eleanor, the second of four daughters born to Ramon Berengar IV, Count of Provence, whose eldest daughter Margaret was already married to Louis IX. Like Henry's famous grandmother Eleanor of Aquitaine before her, Eleanor of Provence brought with her the influence and interests of a vibrant southern French culture. Controversially, she did not bring the promise of any landed territory in France, but what she lacked in land she made up for in connections, not just to the French court through Margaret, but to the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy through her mother's family. Eleanor's mother, Beatrice of Savoy, had five brothers, all of whom were extremely skilful diplomats with alliances and contacts throughout Europe. The Counts of Savoy, also known as Savoyards, controlled the northern passages into Italy, and as such were in the thick of the violent diplomatic struggles between the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II and the Papacy. Henry's keen interest in the politics of the Holy Roman Empire had been shown when he married his younger sister Isabella to Frederick in 1235. His own marriage to Eleanor now reinforced his links. Even if Plantagenet kingship was to be restricted to England and Gascony, Henry was determined to stay firmly involved in the complex power politics of Europe. Henry knew that the eyes of Europe would be upon his wedding ceremony in Canterbury on January 20, 1236, and on the new Queen's coronation, which took place six days later. Whatever the world could afford to create pleasure and magnificence were there brought together from every quarter, wrote the chronicler Matthew Paris, who was close to Henry's court. London was filled to bursting with the great men and women of England, servants, hangers-on, and crowds desperate to glimpse the king's wedding. The whole city was ornamented with flags and banners, chaplets and hangings, candles and lamps, and with wonderful devices and extraordinary representations, and all the roads were cleansed from mud and dirt, sticks and everything offensive, wrote Paris. The citizens went out to meet the king and queen, dressed in their ornaments, and vied with each other in trying the speed of their horses. A highly competitive spirit took hold as archbishops, bishops, abbots, earls, and the citizens of England's ancient cities laid claim to their rightful ceremonial duties. From roles as prestigious as crowning the Queen and bearing the ceremonial sword of St. Edward the Confessor, to more modest ones, such as waving a stick at onlookers who pressed too close and arranging the cups on the dinner-table, every act within the pageant dignified its actor and bound all together in a communion of kingship. At the end of it all, Henry had a bride who provided him with a direct connection to European high politics, a confirmation of his manhood, and a grand occasion to direct England's peers and paupers in enthusiastic demonstrations of their loyalty. He celebrated his nuptials by taking his new queen on a summer trip to Glastonbury to see King Arthur's supposed burial site. This was enough on its own to excite the realm, but Henry and Eleanor's marriage was followed by another that proved equally important to the history of the reign. In January 1238, the rising star of the court Simon de Montfort was sensationally married to Henry's twenty-three-year-old sister Eleanor of Leicester. The princess was not merely the youngest child of John and Isabella of Angoulême, but also the widow of William Marshall the Younger, late Earl of Pembroke and eldest son of the king's one-time regent. On her first husband's death, the sixteen-year-old Eleanor had sworn a holy oath of chastity before Edmund Rich, Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, wooed by de Montfort, she had chosen to break it. De Montfort had arrived in England in 1230, pursuing a claim through his grandmother Amicia de Beaumont to the earldom of Leicester. A charismatic, high-born Frenchman, he was only two years younger than the king, whom he impressed and eventually intimidated with his shrewd political and literary mind, military brilliance, formidable social connections, and religious fanaticism. Simon de Montfort was a difficult man. Obstinate and consumed by ambition, he wore a hair shirt, ate and drank frugally, and stayed up late in saintly devotions. 
Although they were roughly the same age, de Montfort would become yet another paternal figure to whom Henry could look up with childish admiration. It did not take him long to become the king's close friend and one of his closest counsellors. Nevertheless, his sudden marriage to Eleanor shocked the realm. Eleanor was by some measure the most valuable bride in England. She came with royal access, landed power, and high status. Although Henry had consulted a great council of barons and prelates before both his own marriage and that of his sister Isabella, Eleanor was given to de Montfort without consultation, and the couple was married in secret. This seemed to run contrary to all the principles of consensual government that Henry had promised on his assumption of full kingship, and it caused outrage among the English nobility, both lay and ecclesiastical. The barons objected that de Montfort's marriage would upend regional and national power structures, bringing him a vast income and lands throughout southern England to add to the lands he had inherited in the earldom of Leicester. The bishops, for their part, were perplexed that Eleanor was allowed to remarry after having taken a vow of chastity. General outrage was so severe that a political crisis erupted, in which Henry's brother Richard, Earl of Cornwall, allied himself with Gilbert Marshall, the new Earl of Pembroke, and the Earl of Winchester, and led yet another armed rebellion against the king, which took six months to defuse. Fortunately for Henry, he tended to make peace with his troublesome brother rather quickly, and the crisis passed. De Montfort was secured in his position as royal favourite and brother-in-law, and travelled to Rome to seek approval from Pope Innocent IV for his marriage. Shortly after his return in November 1238, Eleanor de Montfort gave birth at Kenilworth Castle to the couple's first child, a boy whom the couple named after the king. In the meantime, Henry's new young queen was joined at the royal court by a crowd of Savoyards, including three of her diplomat uncles, Peter, Thomas, and Boniface of Savoy. Peter and Thomas of Savoy would do much to influence public policy during their time in England. Impressed by the elegance, experience, and well-connected worldliness of the Savoyards, Henry was generous with his patronage. Thomas, who had inherited the county of Flanders, was in little need of royal generosity, but Peter was knighted in 1241 and granted the lordship of Richmond in Yorkshire. Three years later his younger brother Boniface was invested as Archbishop of Canterbury, having been elected to the position in 1240 after the death of Edmund Rich. As Henry dispensed landed titles, Eleanor busied herself tying together English and Savoyard families in marriage, adding a new flavour to certain quarters of the English aristocracy. Not everyone liked it, but on the whole the Savoyards brought more to England than they took. In mid-June 1239 the 16-year-old Queen Eleanor gave birth to the first royal child. The king had been sleeping with her since their marriage. Indeed, Henry's life had been saved two years earlier when a knife-wielding maniac had broken into the royal bedroom only to find the king absent, in bed with his fifteen-year-old wife. And it was a source of great joy that she finally bore him a boy to continue the family line. When news broke that the queen had given birth to a son, there was wild celebration throughout the palace of Westminster. The clerks of the royal chapel sang Christus Vincit, Christus Regnat, Christus Imperat, Christ conquers, Christ reigns, Christ rules, and when news reached London, there was a city-wide street festival. Henry was exacting about the joy he expected of his subjects. This was the first Plantagenet heir to be born in three decades. When messengers returned bearing gifts of congratulation from the great nobles and bishops of England, the king inspected his hall. Presents that were not deemed worthy of the occasion were returned with a demand for something better. What would the boy be called? Plantagenet family tradition might have suggested Henry, John, Richard, William, or even Geoffrey, but Henry Third had something more exotic in mind. He decided that his son would be named Edward, after his beloved confessor. It was a bizarre choice of name for a Plantagenet prince, or indeed for any aristocratic child born in England during the thirteenth century. It would have sounded odd and archaic to well-bred ears. But Henry had a vision of kingship that wound together historical narratives of Plantagenet conquest 
and the saintliness of the ancient kings. Like William the Etheling before him, Lord Edward, as the child grew up to be known, was to embody both England's ancient past and its future, and bring a distinct new identity to Plantagenet kingship. At Queen Eleanor's Churching, a religious ceremony carried out to celebrate a woman's recovery from childbirth, a furious argument blew up between the king and de Montfort. It was to have unforeseen but deadly repercussions for both parties. Ever since his rapid elevation, de Montfort had been in some financial difficulty. It had cost him handsomely to buy his brother Amaury out of his half-share in the earldom of Leicester, and in 1237 he had taken the cross, which brought with it more expense. His wife had a reputation for high extravagance, and all in all he was finding his position as the king's brother-in-law to be somewhat beyond his means. He had borrowed two thousand pounds from Thomas of Savoy in 1239, and pledged Henry's name as a guarantor without first consulting the king. Henry took exception to this, and at the churching ceremony he exploded in anger. There were probably other reasons, including simmering resentment on Henry's part of the political cost he had been made to pay for allowing de Montfort to marry his sister, but shifting suddenly from a position of lavish generosity to white rage, Henry berated de Montfort and Eleanor, now pregnant for the second time, and accused Simon of having seduced his sister before their marriage. The king was so furious that his pregnant sister and former friend were forced to flee England. Effectively banished, de Montfort decided to make good on his crusader's oath. Richard Earl of Cornwall lived up to his uncle and namesake's reputation by leading a crusade to Palestine between 1239 and 1241, and de Montfort joined enthusiastically. The Baron's Crusade, as it was known, was quite successful, and in alliance with Theobald IV of Champagne, Richard managed to recover Galilee and re-fortify Ascalon. As her husband fought the infidel in Outremer, Eleanor de Montfort retired to Brindisi in southern Italy, where she was sheltered by her brother-in-law Frederick II. When de Montfort returned from the east in 1242, he found Henry in a confident mood, ready to welcome him back into royal favour. Henry had taken advantage of a succession dispute in Wales between two sons of Llewellyn the Great, supporting Llewellyn's son David as the new ruler of Gwyneth, and forcing him to pay homage at Gloucester, thereby establishing the superior authority of Plantagenet kingship. As with his father before him, supremacy at home had encouraged Henry III to think again of his territorial claims overseas, and he was planning a military expedition to Poitou. There was little enthusiasm among the magnates, who refused to permit him to levy the taxes he would need for a grand conquest, so Henry required all the money and talent he could gather to launch what amounted to a purely private invasion. He was grateful to have his brother-in-law, now a skilled and experienced general, back in his service. In the end, the expedition to Poitou was a disaster. The English army was small and underfunded, accompanied by a paltry two hundred knights, regularly betrayed by supposed Poitevin allies, and completely outwitted by Louis the Ninth. Simon de Montfort fought with distinction, but it was in a hopeless cause. Henry III suffered a string of humiliating losses, during the course of which he was shown up as the worst general his family had ever produced. The campaign caused yet another quarrel with his brother Richard, to whom Henry had promised Gascony as a reward for his valiant service in a losing cause, before reneging on the Queen's advice. At Saint, de Montfort was overheard likening Henry to Charles the Simple, the tenth-century Carolingian king of France whose military failings were such that he was eventually imprisoned by his own subjects. Even if they were outwardly reconciled, it was clear that de Montfort and Henry were unlikely to remain at peace for long. Indeed, it seemed increasingly unlikely that any of Henry's large and varied extended family would see their holy but hapless king through many more untroubled years. Holy Kingship Tapers flickered in the king's chamber throughout the night of October 12, 1247. It was the eve of the feast of the translation of St. Edward, now the holiest king in English history and the namesake of Henry's eldest son. 
the king knelt deep in prayer. He had been fasting on a pauper's diet of bread and water, and was preparing himself with a sleepless night of devotion for a ceremony of profound, solemn divinity. Henry had purchased from the nobles of Outremer a delicate crystalline vessel containing a portion of the blood of Christ, which was said to have been collected from Jesus as he suffered the agonies of the Passion. It fitted well into the royal relic collection, which already contained a stone marked with the footprint of Jesus, left just prior to the Ascension. On the Feast of St. Edward, Henry himself would now present his latest gift, which to his mind rivalled Louis the Ninth's crown of thorns as the greatest Christian relic in Western Europe, to the community of Westminster Abbey. For once he had something to celebrate. In a rare moment of peaceful collaboration, his brother Richard was overseeing the production of a reformed coinage that would restore faith in the debased English currency and earn a tidy profit for both the treasury and his earldom of Cornwall. Better still, after a period of renewed rebellion following David of Llewellyn's submission to Henry in 1241, a coalition of Welsh princes had in April 1247 once more come to terms with the English crown, accepting Henry as their feudal overlord, and extending English rule farther and deeper into Wales than at any time since his father's reign. Meanwhile, the royal family continued to expand. In May, Henry had married two of the Queen's relatives to two of his royal wards, the Earl of Lincoln and the Lord of Connaught. This drew two significant baronial families directly into the royal orbit. When dawn broke on that October morning, all the priests of London assembled beneath the giant wooden spire of St. Paul's Cathedral, dressed in grand ceremonial attire with surplices and hoods, their clerks arranged around them, carrying symbols and crosses. Hundreds of tapers gave a steady glow to the dark autumnal morning. They awaited their king. Henry arrived, dressed humbly in a poor cloak without a hood, a simple penitent whose mean dress was accentuated by the finery of his attendants. He entered the cathedral and emerged carrying the little crystal vial above his head, both hands fixed around it, both eyes trained upward to this exquisite relic, and on to the heavens beyond. Thus he began his procession on foot along the road from London to Westminster. It was a tiring business. The king was drained by a night of sleepless fasting, and the potholes and bumps in the road threatened constantly to bring him to his knees. But at some level, such was his love of ostentatious piety, he welcomed the discomfort. He had been drawn to the pageantry of royal devotion all his life, ever since as a thirteen-year-old he had watched with awe at the Trinity Chapel in Canterbury, as St. Thomas Becket's remains had been transferred to a golden, bejewelled coffin. His mind may have wandered back to that day as he processed with the holy blood, two assistants supporting his aching arms as they held his prize aloft. Before reaching the doors of Westminster Abbey, the procession would have heard the commotion awaiting them. Songs and tears and exultations to the Holy Spirit rang from the Abbey Church, it was in the early stages of a massive rebuilding project begun in 1245 to redevelop it in the French Gothic style. Some £45,000 would be spent to ensure that the Abbey Church mimicked and rivalled the great French churches of Saint-Chapelle, Saint-Denis, and Reims. Slender, soaring columns were to be added, with pointed windows and stained glass. The weight was to be borne outside the walls by flying buttresses. The king, deep in his devotions, did not stop when he first reached the church. He carried on the vial held above his head as before, and made a circuit of the church, then the nearby palace, and finally his own royal chambers. When this tour was complete, he returned to the church and presented the priceless gift to God, to his beloved Edward the Confessor, to the church of St. Peter at Westminster, and to the community of the abbey. This lavish spectacle was the high point of Henry's royal pageantry. Before his assembled English knights, nobles, and bishops, he carried off a triumphant scene that would have been the envy of Louis the Ninth's and Frederick the Second's sophisticated courts. 
The Bishop of Norwich later gave a sermon pointing out the preeminence of Henry's relic above any other relic in Europe. The cross is a most holy thing on account of the more holy shedding of Christ's blood made upon it, not the blood-shedding holy on account of the cross. He added, according to Matthew Paris, that it was on account of the great reverence and holiness of the King of England, who was known to be the most Christian of all Christian princes, that this invaluable treasure had been sent by the Patriarch of Jerusalem, for in England, as the world knew, faith and holiness flourished more than in any other country throughout the world. Here, then, was Henry's vision of kingship. It was a holy office that redrew the lineage of the royal family back to pre-conquest times. Like Henry I, the king was knitting his own rule to ancient Saxon lineage, celebrating its English origins as well as its continental sophistication. But there was more to the ceremony than a simple affirmation of genealogy. Henry's kingship was a matter not merely of right and conquest, but of divinity. Here was the king as minister, not at war with his church, as had so often been the case under his father and grandfather, but enriching and protecting it. Here was Henry the intercessor, Henry the pilgrim, Henry the benefactor. He spoke to England's soul and to its history. After the ceremony, Henry cast off his pauper's costume and donned a glittering garment made from precious cloth, woven with shining metal thread and decorated in gold. With a simple golden crown on his head, he knighted his half-brother William de Valence and several others of his Poitevin and Gascon nobles. The priest-pilgrim king thus became the chivalric lord. Though there were plenty outside the walls of Westminster who had grave doubts about the likelihood that Jesus' blood had survived the thirteen centuries since it was spilled on Calvary, Henry's pious ceremony was very much of the moment, an autumnal version of the spring feast of Corpus Christi, which had been established as a yearly festival by the Bishop of Liège the previous year. It was also impossibly grand, as the chronicler Matthew Paris was at pains to point out in the eyewitness account that the king commissioned him to write. But was it politically effective? The answer, alas, was no. Despite his masterly creation of a new dynastic myth over the course of the 1240s, as the fifth decade of his reign approached, Henry began to experience a succession of troubles, mostly of his own devising, which combined by 1258 to cause the most severe political crisis in England in half a century. In May 1247, Simon de Montfort had been persuaded not to leave Western Europe for a second crusade. He was sent instead to shore up a troublesome region of Henry's overseas dominions, Gascony. After the failure of the Poitou expedition of 1242 to 1243, Henry had to reinforce that part of the French mainland of whose loyalty he could still be reasonably certain. De Montfort was thus sent to Gascony as a royal lieutenant, with sweeping powers to govern quasi-independently and protect the king's interests against the incursions of the numerous threatening powers close to the Gascon borders—France, Castile, Aragon, and Navarre. De Montfort took to his new role with rather too much relish. Given almost total freedom of action in rebel country, far from the centre of English royal government, he performed at first admirably, building a diplomatic shield around the borders of the duchy thanks to alliances with the great lords of the region. But before long he had run short of money and began collecting enemies. The Gascon nobles, led by the intractably rebellious Gaston de Bayarn, refused to submit to his high-handed rule. Resistance was dealt with severely. De Montfort confiscated land, destroyed buildings, and worst of all, cut vines, a terrible punishment in a land whose main source of income was from wine. By 1252, Gascony was in uproar. Henry, despairing, recalled de Montfort to face trial before the royal council. It was a fractious affair with hurt feelings on both sides. The accusations levelled were severe. The Gascons called him an infamous traitor, guilty of extorting from the people and imprisoning and starving to death his enemies. According to Matthew Paris, de Montfort was acutely affronted by the aspersions cast upon his character. When he first heard of the Gascons' accusations, he raged to Henry, 
Is it, my lord king, that you incline your ear and your heart to the messages of these traitors to you, and believe those who have often been convicted of treachery rather than me, your faithful subject? Henry blithely responded, If everything is clear, what harm will the scrutiny do you? As de Montfort's case came to trial before Henry's sympathetic barons, both parties let their emotions run away with them. After an incensed monologue denouncing Henry's fecklessness in giving credence to Gascon complaints, de Montfort demanded of the king, "'Who could believe that you are a Christian? Have you never confessed?' Henry coldly replied, "'I have.' In a bitter retort recorded by Matthew Paris, de Montfort then said, "'But what avails confession without repentance and atonement?' To damn so devout a king before the great and good of England was ill-advised. Although the royal council found in the earl's favour, and he was returned briefly to Gascony, his very presence there was by now a cause for rebellion. Henry was forced to go to Gascony in person, subdue it with lavish expenditure, and fit it out for his son to take over as an appanage and in due course when Lord Edward was married to Eleanor of Castile on November 1st, 1254, in the Abbey of Santa Maria la Real de las Huelgas in Castile, Henry granted the duchy to his son as a wedding gift, bringing to a close a disastrous period in its administration. As part of the settlement, Henry paid off de Montfort's contract as lieutenant, but the king's bitter words to his former friend summed up the simmering feeling that endured for the next decade. I never repented of any act so much as I now repent of ever having permitted you to enter England, or to hold any land or honours in that country, in which you have fattened so as to kick against my authority. Henry's vision of a restored Plantagenet patrimony, rejoining Normandy, Anjou, and Aquitaine to the English crown, was close to his heart from the moment he assumed his majority, but any real attempt to realise that ambition lay far beyond his budget. While Louis the Ninth was able to pay a hundred and fifty thousand livres for his crown of thorns and raise a million livres in a crusading fund, Henry the Third struggled to amass enough coin to launch a simple cross-channel invasion force every four or five years. There was simply no escaping the fact that, in comparison with both his ancestors and his rivals, Henry was poor. The means he derived from his estates in England and the profits of government, justice, and trade may have been adequate to his needs when carefully managed in peacetime. Indeed, during the periods of his reign when Henry was not pursuing his inheritance, his revenues looked positively healthy. But they were never fit for the task of fighting major wars to conquer foreign territory. Henry did his best to mask this unpleasant fact. His motto, which adorned the wall of the painted chamber in Westminster, was Kene dune kene tine ne prent ke desire, roughly translated as He who does not give what he loves does not get what he wants. He wished to cultivate the image of the free-spending prince whose magnanimity brought bountiful reward. He had a passion for precious stones and shimmering metal. He invested heavily in his architectural projects and freely indulged his love of collecting art and jewels although he ended up having to pawn much of his treasure in the 1260s. Like Louis IX, he travelled in style, made lavish donations to his favourite institutions and shrines, and had his daily masses celebrated by priests in gloriously decorated vestments. He stockpiled gold, the rising currency of Europe, in his personal chambers, living among stacks of ingots, gold leaf, and gold dust but unlike Louis, whose annual income at more than £70,000 was nearly twice the English king's, behind this façade Henry faced a deep structural problem with royal finance. Because he could not raise enough money by his own devices to launch successful foreign campaigns, Henry relied on ad hoc raids on marginal groups such as Jews, and on the taxes he could now obtain only through negotiation with his greatest subjects. We have already seen how, with the Compact of 1225, Henry had established a principle of quid pro quo with regard to political concessions in exchange for taxes. By the late 1240s, this relationship had matured, and the great men of England had begun to view their meetings with the king as a legitimate and customary venue in which to air their critiques of government policy. 
The meetings gained a formal name when Henry III adjourned a law case to a parliament in 1236. Between 1248 and 1249, four of these prototypical parliaments refused Henry a grant of tax to fund Simon de Montfort's conquest of the old Plantagenet lands. As well as refusing to grant money, they also made loud complaints about widespread corruption in local government. Henry was reduced to raising funds by selling royal treasure, carrying out a ludicrous second re-coinage in 1257 in which gold rather than silver was issued as currency, and borrowing heavily from powerful nobles, including his brother Richard. Since he met stubborn resistance to taxation from his barons, Henry was forced to squeeze other less regulated sources of income. He concentrated on revenue streams that drew more heavily on the pockets of his knights and lower-born subjects. Repeated heavy talladging of the Jews became ever less profitable during the 1250s. Henry's travelling royal courts attempted to take up the slack and began to concentrate more heavily than ever on milking the profits of justice. Sheriffs, frequently foreign-born, centrally appointed officials parachuted into the shires to oversee royal government, became noticeably more rapacious in their efforts to raise money. Ignoring the shameful and unbalancing effect this had on governance in the localities, Henry would grant multiple shrievalties to his followers, leading them to press heavily for money on people to whom they were neither connected nor accountable. Meanwhile, feudal exemptions were widely sold by the crown, leading to an unpredictable and uneven level of royal exactions in the localities. Much of this ran directly against the spirit and at times the letter of the Magna Carta. As the 1250s progressed, Henry's government once again began to chafe. Problems were raised by factions at court, and by one faction in particular, a group of the king's relatives who had recently arrived at court and were known collectively as the Lusignan. The Lusignan brothers, William and Aimer de Valence, were Henry's half-siblings through his mother Queen Isabella of Angoulême's second marriage to Hugh X de Lusignan. They had revolted against Louis IX during Henry's ill-fated Poitou campaign of 1241-1242, and the French king had a fierce grudge against the family. William, Aymer, the brothers Guy and Geoffrey, and their sister Alice had arrived in England in 1247. Henry received them with much acclaim and fanfare, knighting William at his great Westminster ceremony on October 13, 1247. The king's partisan generosity caused widespread resentment, tinged with xenophobia. William de Valence, as well as his belting as a knight, had also been granted marriage to Joan de Muncensi, the granddaughter of the first William Marshal, and had thus come to be Lord of Pembroke and plenty of other manors and castles in Wales and the borders. Aymer, meanwhile, became bishop-elect of Winchester, while Guy and Geoffrey were granted wardships and money. More important, however, as friends of the king, they were frequently protected from royal justice. The Lusignans were a clique. They arrived together and were planted into English life en masse, much as the Queen's Savoyard uncles had done when they arrived in the 1230s. They were, however, considerably harsher and more unpleasant in their conduct than the Queen's cousins, and there was significant tension between the two groups. The Lusignans were seen as haughty, ill-mannered, violent, proud, contemptuous, and quarrelsome. Even in a society regularly punctuated by violence, they managed to attract attention for their unpleasantness. A dispute between Aymer and the Queen's Savoyard uncle Boniface, Archbishop of Canterbury, resulted in an armed band of Lusignan supporters ransacking Lambeth Palace, stealing money, silver, and plate, and hot-footing it with hostages to their castle at Farnham. The king, who relied on the Lusignans for cash loans, did not punish them satisfactorily for this or other misdemeanours. Indeed, quite the opposite was true. In 1256, Henry gave an order that writs against his favourites should not be acted upon. It was a serious failure of government, and unsurprisingly was viewed as a direct violation of the clause in the Magna Carta that forbade the denial or delay of justice. By the mid-1250s the king was seen by the barons at court and by much of the country as dominated by his new favourites at the expense of good governance. As a group of barons later wrote to the Pope, 
If anyone brought a complaint and sought judgment against the Lusignans, the king turned against the complainant in a most extraordinary manner, and he who should have been a propitious judge became a terrible enemy. Henry's undue leaning toward his cousins was undermining what was increasingly being seen, from the baronial side at least, as his basic duty, to provide accessible, ready, reasonably even-handed justice. He was corrupting public authority to favour private interest. Mild-spirited as he was, in the language of classical political philosophy, the king was becoming a tyrant. Worse still, he was growing delusional. The final problem of the 1250s, which illustrated both the scope of Henry's vision of kingship and the reach of his awesome folly, lay on an island far from the borders of England, Sicily. This audiobook is continued on Disc 8. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones continued. Disc 8 When Henry decided to take the cross in 1250, a significant shift in his foreign policy followed. Having spent his entire reign attempting to build anti-French alliances in the East, particularly with Emperor Frederick II, to whom he had married his sister, he now shifted tack and dreamed of sending a vast army east to assist with the recapture of Jerusalem. The city, reclaimed for the Christians by Frederick II during the Sixth Crusade in 1228, had in 1244 been invaded and almost wholly razed by fierce Quaresmian clans from farther east. Louis IX had taken up the crusading mantle in 1248, and Henry determined to join him. In the short term this had allowed him to collect a crusading tax, but it was no cynical financial trick. Pious Henry, who decorated his palaces with paintings of Richard the Lionheart fighting a supposed duel with Saladin, the two men of course never met, genuinely imagined the glory that would be showered upon him if he revived his family's crusading tradition. Unfortunately, Henry's fanciful plans had to compete with his real obligations in Gascony, which devoured his time, and more important, his money. Although he amassed substantial funds through clerical taxation, by 1255 almost all had been sunk in restoring order across the Channel. Yet the king's crusading ambition remained undimmed. Rather than give up his ambition, he readjusted his sights, from Outremer to somewhere closer to home. In 1254 Pope Innocent IV began to hawk the theoretically vacant crown of Sicily around the princes of Europe, claiming that as the feudal overlord of the island, its crown was in his power to award. Henry saw an opportunity. He could reclaim a far-flung former Plantagenet land, a project that would combine his enthusiasm for crusading with his ambition to restore his inheritance. Henry's aunt Joan, daughter of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, had been Queen of Sicily during the 1180s, and a prisoner of King Tancred II during the 1190s. Richard I had freed her on his journey east to the Third Crusade, then conquered the island to teach Tancred a lesson. Since then the kingdom had been drawn into the interminable wars between the emperors and the papacy, a strategic pawn in the power struggle that engulfed Italy and Central Europe for decades. In 1254 Henry sent emissaries requesting that the kingdom should be granted to his second son Edmund, and his request was granted enthusiastically via the papal legate in March of that year. Had Henry III been richer, less beset by other problems, and a more competent military strategist, securing Sicily for his second son might have been a realistic task. Unfortunately, he was instead a naive fantasist with a penchant for impossible schemes. Richard, Earl of Cornwall, troublesome but far wiser than the king, had been offered the crown of Sicily in 1252. He had flatly refused it, telling the papal nuncio, "'You might as well say, I will give or sell you the moon. Climb up and take it!' Nevertheless, from 1254 Henry's crusading plans morphed into an obligation to fund the conquest of Sicily in the name of the Pope. In May 1255 it was made official. A Parliament was astonished when on St. Edward's Day, October 13, 1255, the assembled magnates were told that in pledging to undertake the Sicilian expedition, Henry had incurred debts to the new Pope, Alexander IV, 
of 135,541 marks. It was a mind-boggling sum of money, perhaps three times as much as Henry could hope to raise from clerical taxation, and ironically not far off the 150,000 marks that Richard I had been forced to pay to escape imprisonment after the Third Crusade. With this vast and entirely fanciful fortune the barons learned, Henry was to fund an army that would march through France to Sicily, using the Alpine passes that Henry controlled thanks to his Savoyard connections. From southern Italy an amphibious invasion would be launched against the island, and its crown seized. Clearly this was ambitious, considering Henry's mediocre history of generalship. To make things worse, Henry had agreed that if he defaulted on his obligations, England would be placed under interdict, and he would be excommunicated. It was a mess, and yet Henry brimmed with confidence about his new cause. He made a great show of the official announcements connected with the scheme. He accepted Sicilian clergy into the realm. Thinking he had gained a useful ally in his Sicilian project, he celebrated when his brother Richard was elected King of the Germans in 1256 and installed the following year. Most preposterously, in March 1257, Henry presented his twelve-year-old son Edmund, supposedly now the King of Sicily, to his assembled and stunned magnates and prelates. The boy was wearing full Apulian costume. The truth was that no aspect of the Sicilian venture was even remotely realistic. The nobility of the kingdom grieved at being reduced to such ruin by the supine simplicity of one man, wrote Matthew Paris. This new crusade, far from appealing to his nobles, led to Henry's finding himself despised for his reckless adventurism. The magnates would have no part in paying for his scheme, and pointed out on every possible occasion its long list of problems. But Henry had sworn an oath, which he was much less inclined than his father to break, that he would conquer this faraway island with very little practical value. By 1257 the country was growing deeply sceptical about Henry's ability to rule. His coffers were empty, the Lusignans were loathed, he was committed to his Sicilian madness, on which he had mortgaged his kingdom and his immortal soul, with no way of making his payments. The Pope, Alexander IV, was making ominous, albeit probably not entirely sincere noises, about executing the sentences of interdict and excommunication, and in 1258 Henry's barons, summoned to a parliament in Westminster in the hope that they might miraculously help pay for the Sicilian project, arrived in a radical, reforming mood. If any scene summed up Henry's state of mind in the fortieth year of his reign, it was that which in 1256 he had had painted in the wardrobe at Westminster, a very personal room in which the king's head was washed, and in which he spent some of his most private hours. It was a scene in which a king was rescued by a pack of dogs from a plot made against him by his own men. As a child Henry had seen his father's realm invaded, he had seen as a boy king in 1216 to 1217 his own barons turn against his family and beg a French prince to be their king. Now, four decades later, with the English barons once again mutinous, it was clear that those terrible memories were coming back to haunt him. Henry had finally proved himself his father's son. THE PROVISIONS OF OXFORD it was early in the morning on April 30th, 1258, when a large body of nobles, knights, and their followers approached the King's Hall at the Palace of Westminster, armour clattering and swords clanking against their sides. At the head were four men, the Queen's uncle, Peter of Savoy, Richard de Clare, Earl of Gloucester, Roger Bigard, Earl of Norfolk, and Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, who was fast becoming Henry's bête noire. The men would have been up since dawn, nervous with anticipation for the confrontation that lay ahead. As they approached the door to Henry's magnificent hall, they would have known that their message would be profoundly unwelcome. They were ostensibly there to give the king a reply to his recent request for aid with the Sicilian crisis, but really they came determined to detach him from the pernicious Lusignan, and to address a political crisis that could no longer be ignored. 
They were bonded together in a pact of mutual alliance to help each other against all people, doing right and taking nothing that we cannot take without doing wrong, saving faith to our Lord, the King of England, and to the Crown. England had sunk into a miserable condition. Respiratory disease swept through the country in the summer of 1257, before torrential rain killed the autumn crops, and a hard winter prevented the cultivation of land for the spring. Disease and pestilence galloped through the country, and thousands starved in the villages. Dead bodies were found everywhere, swollen and livid, lying by fives and sixes in pigsties or on dunghills or in the muddy streets, wrote Matthew Paris. When the earls and their followers had been summoned to Parliament three weeks earlier, rebellion was ripping through Wales led by the formidable Prince of Gwyneth, Llewellyn ap Griffith. The papal envoy Arlott continued to bluster about excommunication and interdict if the Sicilian debt was not settled, and the Lusignans had broken free of any pretense of control. At the start of April, men loyal to Bishop Aymer of Winchester had killed a follower of the influential noble John Fitz Geoffrey, and Henry had refused to punish the perpetrators. As Parliament convened in Westminster to answer yet another request for royal finance, it was generally agreed that the king was powerless to discipline the criminal faction that dominated his court. What occurred on April 30th was recorded in the annals of Tewkesbury Abbey, a continuous chronicle charting the history of the monastic institution and the country at large, whose author probably heard it from an eye-witness. As the third hour, mid-morning, approached, noble and vigorous men, earls, barons, and knights, went to the court at Westminster, wrote the analyst. They placed their swords before the entrance to the king's hall, and appearing before the king, saluted him as their lord king in devoted manner with fitting honour. These were no rebels. They presented themselves to Henry as friends of the English crown and all that it ought to stand for. But Henry could not see past their armour. The swords might be resting by the door, but it was hardly an encouraging sight when a group of powerful nobles approached the throne dressed for warfare. "'What is this, my lords?' he asked. "'Am I, wretched fellow, your humble captive?' "'No,' replied the Earl of Norfolk. But let the wretched Poitevin, i.e. the Lusignan, and all aliens flee from your face and ours as from the face of a lion, and there will be glory to God in the heavens and in your land peace to men of good will. Henry may have been shocked, but he could not have been entirely surprised. Hostility toward the Lusignan was nearly universal, and it is likely that the men who stormed into his presence had the covert backing of the Queen. Hugh Biggard said he spoke for all the magnates in England when he said the king ought to swear to obey their counsels. Both Henry and Lord Edward ought to swear on the Gospels that they would be bound by the consideration of a panel of twenty-four barons, half elected by the king and half by the magnates. Henry should promise not to attempt to impose any taxes, and he should hand over the royal seal, the ultimate tool of government, to a responsible person whose identity would be decided by the twenty-four. The twenty-four would then elect a continual council of fifteen to guide the king's hand on matters of day-to-day -day government, while a parliament would meet three times a year and appoint royal ministers. These were extraordinary demands, but on that April morning there seemed to be no way around them. The collective political will of the barons was impossible to resist. That same day Henry and his son Edward swore on the Gospels to do as Bigard asked. After a decade of mounting catastrophe, kingship was to be performed by committee, its essential functions placed in the hands of the barons. And yet, as the experience at Runnymede of the barons' forefathers had shown, the king might consent to new restrictions on paper, but these were often difficult to enforce in practice. Henry, like John before him, wriggled after the fact, attempting to exploit his right to appoint half the committee of twenty-four, by packing it with Lusignan. Yet his efforts foundered. He could not find even a dozen men of sufficient status and rank who still supported his kingship. Eight weeks later, at Oxford, another parliament was convened. The town bristled with the vicious weaponry of knights loyal to either side, all there supposedly en route to a campaign in Wales, 
but actually there in case full-blown civil war should erupt. At Oxford, Henry's resistance collapsed. He was presented head-on with a litany of his misdeeds, and was accused of failing to observe the Magna Carta. When Parliament opened, the proposal and unalterable intention of the magnates was adopted, most firmly demanding that the king should faithfully keep and observe the Charter of the Liberties in England, recorded Matthew Paris. They moreover demanded that a justiciar should be appointed to dispense justice to those suffering injury with equal impartiality toward rich and poor. They also asked for other things touching the kingdom for the common good, the peace and the honour of the king and kingdom alike. Henry and Edward swore another oath to abide by the barons' reforms, but the Lusignans adamantly rejected all calls for them to give up lands and castles awarded to them by the king. They were told in no uncertain terms what to expect if they continued to resist. According to Matthew Paris, the Earl of Leicester, Simon de Montfort, addressing himself to William de Valence, who was blustering more than the others, replied, "'No, for certain, and make no mistake about it. You will either give up the castles which you hold of the king, or you will lose your head.' Horrified, the Lusignans fled Oxford to the safety of Amer's diocese of Winchester. They were formally expelled from the country later in the year, but in the meantime Parliament broke up, in the words of the same chronicler, uncertainly and inconclusively. The barons' proposals at Oxford had been drawn up in close consultation with knights drawn from across the shires of England, and a wide-ranging programme of reform was issued. It sought not only to regulate central government, but to address the serious issues of corruption at the county level. The measures were known as the Provisions of Oxford, 